Welcome to episode six of the Rig Podcast. This is actually episode six and episode seven coming back to back weeks. Uh, we recorded, we had to split up an interview with Sharon Salem from the University of Massachusetts, former chemist from the University of Massachusetts Drug Lab, because it was very long and we had a lot to say about it. And it is very revealing. It's exclusive content for the Rig Podcast, where a chemist from a state lab says that um, every lab, including the state police lab and the Hinton lab, and the Amherst lab were manufacturing drug standards, um, which wasn't a great practice scientifically. It calls into question absolutely everything that was on, that that was tested in these labs. And I think saying it wasn't a great practice uh, scientifically is a ma massive understatement. Understatement of the year. Yeah. <laughs> I'm tripping over my words because this is like the third time I'm bluffing through this. Uh, so please do enjoy part one of the interview with Sharon Salem. And this week we have Ilias Rona and Chris Post, uh, and this week we are going over the Sharon Salem interview, chemist Sharon Salem from the Amherst Lab. Um, this is part one of that interview from Thursday, or excuse me, Tuesday, November 24th, 2015. Uh, guys, have you had a chance to listen to all of these uh, interviews with Sharon? Yes, yeah. And it, uh, I, I have, they're fun. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they are fun. That's that's a great way to describe it. So the, we're going to start with the introductions of uh, everyone who was at this interview. Does anyone have anything else say, to add? Yeah, yeah it, it would have been nice if we had gotten these interviews um, before the hearings in front of Judge Carey in 2016. Do you think it would have helped your case? <laughs> I think it would have. <laughs> and and uh, Chris, uh, good evening, uh, by the way. Uh, Jamie, would it help? If we uh, just quickly remind uh, the listener or the viewer uh, how we got to this point in, in, in brief, uh, and then maybe Chris can tee it up quickly uh, from his point of view, and then we can launch in. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Um, well, Chris, how did you get your hands on the, is that what you're talking about, how Chris got the interview? Yeah, just, well, we had, I think when we left off, there was some discussion about, um, a conclusion long ago that there was only one bad actor, uh, that being Annie Dukin, and then that somehow morphed into conduct at Amherst, and then the discovery that there was some, uh, uh, let's call it charitably questionable practices uh, uh, as to the, uh, the use of what was what were called secondary standards. And I, and mm -hmm. I think just mentioned that uh, the sequence of events. Uh, resulted in official reports coming out before there was any release of information about this issue, secondary standards. Maybe Chris, you could just quickly comment on that. Yeah, specifically with regard to these hearings, um, the audio files I was able to get from the attorney general's office uh, via public records request, but I first learned about them uh, maybe one or two months after the um, the December 2016 Kerry hearings where they were investigating the scope of Ferrick's misconduct and 
also whether or not there was any prosecutorial misconduct. One of the other issues that was sort of live at that time was whether or not the scientific practices at the Amherst lab were um, generally scientifically reliable under Daubert and Lanigan. And so that was an issue that was presented, uh, you know, in part by um, defense counsel in those cases. But had we known some of the things that are included on these tapes, we really, you know, would have been a much different, much different argument. And how are they? Pre- um, so, I mean, so if these were relevant to uh, your hearing and like they were never mentioned, they were never brought up in court, you had no idea that these things even existed at that time or that there was so even an, I, an investigation. I believe it, it at the time of the Kerry hearings in 2016, we were aware that Farrakh had testified before the grand jury that Sharon Salem um, and James Hanchett and um, I think a state police chemist had also testified and we were given access to the transcripts of that grand jury testimony, but these are um, sort of proffer interviews um, where they're divulging basically everything that they know. Um, And it's interesting that some of this was not presented to the grand jury. And it's acutely interesting that these transcripts were not given to the defense bar uh, before those carry hearings, because it would have, added a significant piece to the Dalbert Lanigan challenge. Um, yeah, which was, so the Dalbert, just briefly describe the Dalbert. So again, yeah, just briefly, we, I think we discussed this in a prior episode, but uh, Dalbert um, is the Supreme Court case where it just at baseline, it says uh, for scientific evidence to be admissible, it, it has to be reliable. And so there's a multi-factor test that uh, the proponent of the evidence has to meet in order for it to be introduced at trial at all. Uh, Lanigan is the um, Massachusetts case um, that um, goes along with Daubert saying that this is what we do in, in our state. So standards. So th- like this is how, this is what we equate to scientific processing or et cetera, to have a valid test, right? Right. So. Um, it's about general scientific reliability and uh, whether or not there's any known error rates in the um, type of practice or protocol um, being put forward, uh, among other factors. Right. And so these interviews, as you were saying, um, and sorry, I jumped the gun. I, you know, I just get really excited. It's It's been a while since we've recorded. I want to just dive right in. But these interviews... Um, really show from a scientific standpoint uh, just the lack of credibility of all the testing that was being done by Sharon right. Salem, by Rebecca Ponce, by um, especially James Hanchett, and uh, well, no, especially Sonia Farrakh, but also James Hanchett. All of them were up to there. There was just a I would call it a plague of misconduct in that lab that like no because it there was no actual standards there so they were just kind of winging it what i would call scientifically winging it yeah, uh, one of the things you have to show as the proponent of the evidence or, or one of the prongs is that uh the lab is adhering to generally accepted scientific practices 
All right. So if they're not doing that, it's a really, really steep uphill battle uh, for them to try and show that it should be admitted in court. And the issue here, um, as we'll see, um, as we've uh, sort of discussed in the previous episodes, is these labs continued to claim uh, that they were following SWIG drug when it becomes increasingly clear that they actually were not and knew they were not. Right. And this is just another... And, uh, and, and, and I, oh, I may sound like a broken record here, but I think when people think of lab misconduct, they think of sort of the, the proverbial uh, nudging the golf ball with your foot, sort of to cheat. Um, but but mis, misconduct with respect to the standards, which is that which is supposed to be what you're comparing an unknown substance to, for all samples across the board, uh, uh, is, is not nudging the golf ball, but is in yeah. fact misrepresenting the, 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 that, that a par uh, uh, three is a par four uh, hole, to use a terrible golf analogy. But basically, you are potentially compromising all the results. And it's not just the, the drug reference standards. The SWIG drug requires that you have written protocols, yep. which should be obvious to anyone who's running a lab of any sort, but they did not have them. And that you're to be trained on those protocols and that you show proficiency in the scientific processes therein. You have to be right. properly trained and that has to be demonstrated. That's all part of SWIG drug. They knew it was part of that and there was literally, there was no training. There was, I mean, there was like brief, brief training. But as Chris is saying, if you don't have a valid protocol that it's written, you don't have a written protocol, what are you training like, It's hard to try and demonstrate to a judge, much less the jury, that your protocol is reliable. Right. Right. And if so, we're arguing about protocols, and, and I'm sure people will be like, oh, what's the big deal? What's the, it's like, no, the protocol is actually how you process. You cannot process without it correctly and repeat that process. It's like a recipe. You have to follow it to get that result. And that's what they were asserting time and again on the stand. That's why none of the scientific evidence was questioned, or it would be DOA if it was questioned, because you can't, if someone is flat out lying to you about that and misrepre knowingly misrepresenting the truth, you can't call them a liar without knowing that they are. And even then, it's dicey to call them a liar, even now. But that's, but let's get into it. Let, let's just get into the introductions. We're going to play the clip one. All right, this is clip one. So we are on the record. My name is Captain Stephen Fennessy. I'm with the Massachusetts State Police. I'm assigned to the Attorney General's Office in Boston. Today is uh, Tuesday, November 24th, 2015, and I have approximately 11.16 a.m. I'm here at the Attorney General's Office. We're in the, uh, the uh, State Police Detective Unit. We're in the corner office. And I'm, uh, I'm here with a number of people that um, I uh, want to identify. Could you identify yourself, sir? Uh, my name is Thomas Caldwell. I'm an assistant attorney general assigned to the Criminal Bureau. Could you identify yourself, sir? Eric Klein, counsel for the Massachusetts Organization of State Engineers and Scientists, the union that represents bargaining unit nine in Sharon Salem. And ma'am, could you identify <laughs> My name is Sharon Salem. I work for the Massachusetts State Police, currently assigned to the Criminalistics and Crime Scene Response Units. All right. So the gang is all there. 
Um, so that's the state police, the AG's office, a representative from the uh, chemist union known as Moses, uh, representing Miss Salem there. And uh, yes, what were you going to say, Elias? Were you going to say something? I'm sorry. Uh, no, sorry. I, I accidentally. Oh, uh, no, okay. Um, I was not going to say anything. All right. All right. <laughs> so, so let's That was, that was good. That was a, that was a solid. Maybe we can cut that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's get into uh, her work history, uh, Miss Salem's work history, and the methodology at the lab. All right. This is clip Next, two, right? Clip two. Yeah. All right. Here we go. You have a pretty good idea of what I'm going to ask. So, Miss um, Salem, you were employed as an evidence officer at the Amherst lab. Yes. And for about how long? Can you just tell us you were employed at the lab? Since 1987, I was employed by the lab. And that was at the Amherst Laboratory? Yes. And who was your supervisor when you began? When I began, my supervisor was Alan Stevenson. Alan Stevenson. And uh, were you employed as a chemist one? Yes. And you had a you had a super, an evidence officer there, correct? Yes. And who was that? Donna LaCroix. Donna LaCroix. Okay. And at a certain point, you became the evidence officer, correct? Correct. And that was when Ms. LaCroix, I assume, retired? Yes. Okay. And now, um, just so we're clear, can you just go through briefly your duties and responsibilities as an evidence officer there? As the evidence officer, I would log in samples um, received from the various police departments. I would assign those samples to chemists. They would be um, logged back into me by those chemists and then returned to the police departments. I also did a variety of paperwork um, for the laboratory, be it uh, reports or various um, reports that were needed for the lab. Okay. All right. So uh, evidence officer is something that we've discussed before on the on this podcast. And that is someone that's that person plays an important role because all of the evidence from the uh, police department supposedly go to that evidence officer, and that's part of the chain of custody of the uh, drug samples that are being submitted by the police, correct? Yes. Yep. And so, um, so she has an important role to play, and it's important that she's kind of a, a solid, I mean, solid, there there hasn't been anything really about her time as an evidence officer, officer, I believe, right? I don't think that ever comes up. Well, I mean, the, the only issue that was later raised was that she really should have been taking a closer look at the weights uh, of the samples that were coming in, and that would have possibly led to the uncovering of Farrick's misconduct earlier if she had been, you know, doing her job. <laughs> <laughs> so what you're saying is there was a problem. Well, Randy, play the next clip. Let's see how she took the evidence and if she weighed it. All right, we're going to play this one. Here we go. Um, when they brought you a certain sample from a certain case, um, you would just weigh that piece of evidence, correct? You wouldn't um, count us or do anything uh, more to it. Correct. Okay. So if they said this was 51 bags or if it was 50 pills, you wouldn't open the bag and do your own counting. You would just take their receipt, enter that into evidence? Yes. Okay. And do an initial weight yourself? Yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. 
So, so go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say that's problematic because um, that probably directly led to the issue in the Finch and Espinoza cases. This is the um, incident where the police submitted 61 oxycodone pills uh, to the lab. It was assigned to Ferrick. It came back as 51 uh, pills of a different color and shape. Um, and, <laughs> you know, the fact that she's not, um, you know, doing her own count of these is problematic because it can lead to incidents like that. Like replacing oxycodones with Tylenol? <laughs> I swear this was oxy. All right. Um, let's talk. Uh, let's do the next one. We're, we're talking weight discrepancies here right. from some issues. From some Logs. Okay. So now when you came in and you did that initial weight, would, um, when the chemist would pick up those, that sample or samples to, to test, they would have the receipt from your initial weight in, correct? Yes. Yeah. So they would obviously see that paperwork. They would know. Yes. They would know what I had logged in. Yes. Okay. Um, um, and at any time, if there was a discrepancy, would a chemist call, discuss that with you? If it was a um, large discrepancy, yes, they would discuss it with me. And did that happen frequently? Or? <clears throat> um, it happened occasionally. It wasn't um, a lot of times. I, I don't want to put a number on it, but it would happen occasionally. Okay. Uh, and when that happened, what would you do? any other steps that you would take um, to address the situation? I would bring it up to my supervisor um, as to, you know, the discrepancy, see if we could figure out what the problem was. If it was just a count on bags, we would call the police department, see if maybe they misinformed us, um, see if it was just a weight issue. Okay. We would try and resolve the problem. Okay. And is it, did you, were you able to usually resolve the problem? Or? Yes. Okay, but sometimes you couldn't. Sometimes we couldn't. We would just have to go forward with it. Okay. And we would ask the police department, what do you want to do at this point? Okay. Um, now. Did you check your pockets? Did you wash your pants with a pocket full of cocaine? Officer X, Y, and Z, check the dry cleaning because we're missing an entire bag and we'll just have to move forward. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, it's hard to pick up on how many discrepancies there might have been if you're not doing, you know, the front end work in the first place. How right? is every discrepancy not logged? Like, how do they not know that? Like, how, I mean, the, this is illegal the, drugs, correct? Like, how, oh, we just lost big, it. Mm. That jumps out as, the, as one of the biggest problems is if you're not logging your discrepancies, then you have no internal error rate and without an internal error rate uh it, you know it's like the little league kid when the team doesn't keep stats and you say what are you batting and the kid says oh i i'm you know a thousand oh <laughs> prove me wrong you know you gotta you gotta have someone keeping score and then you suddenly realize that that's not true so not keeping an error log to me is uh, uh it's not just a red flag uh, uh, of course it is but it's also the way that you uh, commit uh, a horrendous mass scale of misconduct, because you, the, the first thing that you discover if you did keep a discrepancy log is we are terrible at our job. That's what I think. Yeah. Yes. 
if you're losing that many sound, if you're losing, like, I mean, I, I don't even want to put a number on it like she didn't, but if you're losing a decent amount, like, come on, like, there has to be a problem, even one or two. Like, you lose it and you have no idea where it is? How is that or, possible? Or worse, you know where it is. I mean, I think right. we're, we're, I don't want to jump the gun, but we know where some of the drugs that were seized ended up. Uh, and they were sort of recycled into different uh, 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 channels in the lab. Uh, and that is uh, hugely problematic, especially given that weights and counts are sometimes of critical significance in, in criminal cases. I mean, I don't think people understand that, that it can come down to uh, an ounce here, a, a baggie there, uh, and 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 uh, uh, we're benefited by hindsight. We know that at least in, in the city of Springfield, there was at least one a, a detective that had trouble keeping his hands off evidence uh, in addition to Sonia Brock. So now you have this issue of, well, if we're not really counting it, what do we have and what's being diverted? We don't know. Right. Right. All right. So next clip is going to be, uh, we're going to ta start talking standards now. This is why they're here. You can, you can get the, I don't know if you got that sense, Chris, but that like the standards question is what gets the most attention and uh, ends up kind of really getting people into trouble. And it was all swept kind of under the rug. But yeah, if Chris, if you, I mean, do you think that this investigation that the AG was doing was about standards more or less? Yeah, I mean, that was clearly something that was interesting to them. Um, if memory serves me correctly. Uh, I think when they had learned what um, Jim Hanchett was doing, he was ordered out of the building where he worked um, at the state police lab right. and subsequently retired within a month or so. So uh, it, it does seem to be what they're focused on. And I think they're trying to determine not just whether or not um, the practices at the lab were, were reliable, but whether or not um, the chemists there were doing something illegal. Right. So we'll get into that in a moment. We'll get into that. But we'll I think I, I, th I think at some point Sharon um, intimates that she heard her interviews with these investigators resulted in Jim Hanchett getting uh, terminated. Is, is, that, is, is that the case? Is that your understanding of what happened? I think that's in part three. Yeah, I think that's in part three. Not to spoil everything, but Woo. we are <laughs> kind of a little mini spoiler there. Yeah, well, spoiler alert. You know, <laughs> rewind it and delete it from your memory, yeah. <laughs> and then it will have never happened. But that will give people an excuse to listen to these horribly dry interviews. So let's continue on with the next one. Let's talk about uh, standard ordering and definition. All right, here we go. You need to. They could. They could. Okay. Um, now. You said that you didn't have any knowledge of the samples. Did Jim Hanchett order all the samples, or the standards, excuse me, for the laboratory? Yes. Okay. And did he do that, do that frequently? Not very frequently, I don't think. Chirp, chirp. Uh, it, it was just for clarification, I'm sorry. Sure, absolutely. What are standard samples? You're reading my mind, <laughs> Standards are what we would use to verify the samples that come into the lab. You can't, you have to compare it to something. You, if you don't have methamphetamine, true methamphetamine on one hand to compare the methamphetamine that you might think is methamphetamine, you have to line it up and make sure it's the same. That's it's standard. Yeah, the known to the unknown. Sure. And would you use that 
um, every time you had a sample of, uh, of methamphetamine, for example, you would go to the standards and bring out uh, a standard and compare the two every time? Or is it something that is used just to calibrate what, what your, the machine you're using? Correct. It's more of a calibration. Okay. Um, especially for samples like methamphetamine, we would, our instruments actually have a library stored within their database and we would um, pull up that library and compare it that way. So it was very infrequent that we would actually need to run a methamphetamine standard. Um, <laughs> however, for coke and heroin, for our more common drugs like coke and heroin, which we ran multiple times every day, we would have to run a standard just to calibrate the instrument to make sure it was working properly, to make sure that that run was working properly. How is meth different? And it was more of a calibration against the instrument right. rather than the sample at that point. Would there be would there be set times after so many samples that you run, you have to recalibrate it or anything like that that, that you're aware of? It would be done for every run. So every batch of samples, we would run a co-heroin standard at the minimum to make sure the instrument's running properly. Understood. And, and um, how much would be used um, during a, during a, a, a calibration. Talking milligrams. Okay. And one more question I have. Where would, where does the lab go for standards? You have to have a DEA license. Okay. And you have, you, it's from <laughs> chemical companies like Merck or whatever. Okay. I'm, I'm not even sure of the drug company names at this point, but even they like supply cocaine? It. Even like cocaine? I believe so. Oh, well, okay. Thank you. Okay. So can I just quickly say that Captain Fantasy reminds me of like all my friends' dads from uh, <laughs> high school. Jimmy, you borrowed your brother's car. There's a dent in the fender. <laughs> Were you the one that did it? I, I actually had a question. How How is that like methamphetamine didn't need to be reprogrammed, but the other ones did? Yeah, I mean, like that's also curious. So uh, Rebecca Ponce, uh, or Pontessa, I'm not sure you pronounce her last name, but she um, spoke in the last episode uh, about a similar type of thing where it seemed like um, the lab thought it was appropriate to run heroin and cocaine standards um, because they had a high volume of those types of samples, but whenever they got anything else, they just sort of uh, regarded to using the GCMS's internal library which is problematic and does not comply with swig drug. Uh, but that also happens to be the reason why um, Farrick was able to use so much of the other standards is because they weren't routinely used. Right. They were just going by the library, so she was using up what they had in inventory, right? Yeah, and, and as I said in the last episode... Uh, that's problematic because you can't demonstrate that the machine is functioning properly. Right. So, wow. BS Science 101. Go ahead. There's a, I mean, the use of the word calibration, I mean, I, I don't want to quibbling, but I think calibration implies that you do something to a machine before you run it to make sure that it's within specifications. Right. So, the, so, for example, if you're going to calibrate a radar gun in baseball, you'd set the pitching machine to 80 miles per hour, throw, shoot the ball out, and confirm that that's the readout on 
radar gun. Right. Um, what they are supposed to do, and she said it and do it every run, that's not calibration because if your results come back unexpected, my understanding is that calls into question the entire run. Right. So mm-hmm. the, the run can't vouch for itself. Uh, right. And so, there, so the, the use of the word calibration, I think, reveals that she didn't actually really understand the chemistry involved. That's calibration, my, my, to your point, Elias, is, is I don't just. Think she understands the difference. Right. You, you have a set of, you have a list of exactly what readouts you're supposed to get for your, whatever machine instrument it is that, that you're calibrating. And you do that, you, it doesn't involve like a, running a, a test sample through. You're just tuning up your instrument, essentially. It's like tuning a guitar or doing something like that. You're, you're warming it up to make sure that it is in proper working order. And what they're doing is a comparison, essentially, right? To to a known from the uh, the standard, and that's how they're cali- I don't know how that that's calibrating the test, maybe, like putting it putting the standard against. You're like testing the the standard, right? To the library, right? So so they have the library running in the background, and you know it says that a certain chemical will come out at X amount of time out of the gas chromatograph. Uh, but it's really important to have a contemporaneous standard running at the same time uh, it, that is known in order to demonstrate that the machine is working. And then also, when you get really into minute technical detail, when these instruments um, print out uh, charts with the various peaks, you're supposed to actually physically compare them. Um, right. That's the second point of comparison and test. Right. And the problem, I mean, I, no one's ever actually said this, so maybe I'll get to you, Chris, as a question. But uh, isn't there a problem with relying purely on the library number uh, because it's not, uh, it's not in and of itself conclusive? Meaning, It's a probability match. And so uh, I suppose, you know, if uh, you were trying to use that in court, you would at least have to alert the jury to the fact that this is just a probability, right? And you have to talk about the constraints. But there may be there may be false positives, right? You may have right, right, exactly. Uh, so I mean, what I'm saying, the the untoured thing about this is saying we certify this is cocaine when there's a ninety percent possibility that it is cocaine. Or what have you, you know, right. even though it's likely cocaine, the jury should know that there's, <laughs> according to the machine, there's a 10% probability that it isn't. And also, by the way, uh, we didn't have a temporaneous standard, so we couldn't check, at least, I'm sorry, with regard to, I guess, all of the other drugs besides cocaine and heroin, but we'll get into the issues with the cocaine standard in a minute. Right. And but they also it's how they're selling this on the you you made that point Chris but it really is how they're selling it on the stand because they're they're saying like I remember reading some of Annie Dukin's testimony on the stand she was asked about standards once and she said they are the Mo, or the I think the prosecutor put the words Mona Lisa of drug product out there 
because it's supposed to be scientifically pure cocaine that's certified from a manufacturer. And Annie Dukin said, yes, this is like the Mona Lisa. This is the the best thing that you can compare cocaine to. And it turns out that they were just making that stuff up in the lab. And you had to have a DEA license for it, as Sharon Salem just said, as Rebecca Ponta said. And I don't think Jim Jim Hanchett, who was creating these standards, and then all the Hinton chemists, as we've said in the podcast before, who were creating these standards, I don't think any of them had a DEA license. Do you know if any did, uh, Chris? So, so the, okay, so this gets sort of hyper-technical, and we're talking about two different labs. Mm-hmm. So they were doing something at Hinton slightly different uh, from the way things were working over at Amherst. Um, they did have a license to operate um, a chemical analysis lab, and that allows you to do very certain things, and there are strict requirements. Um, I would uh, direct any listeners who are interested to um, 21 USC sections 812, 821 to 22, 823, 823 to 04 and 1304.11. So um, there's a myriad of regulations that govern this. So it's very, very particular. Essentially, my understanding, and again, it was never fully explored by uh, any of the DA's offices, the Attorney General's office, or the U.S. Attorney's office, but it appears to me that um, they had the ability to clearly handle these drugs. But as far as what Hanchett was uh, describing, the chemical synthesis of uh, heroin standard from morphine, um, it doesn't appear that that was legal unless they were following um, all the same regulations that an actual legitimate chemical manufacturer uh, was also required to follow. And there's no evidence that they were doing that. Okay. So like you said, it is incredibly technical. You cited all of those uh, regulations. Um, And this is also, you know, this could be a potentially sticky issue that we don't want to falsely accuse people of doing illegal things when they weren't, when they had a license to do them and they were doing it properly. But, um, you know, if that was fully explored, then we need to, then it would be great to see that and see what they found out, how this process was working. But let's let's hear from Sharon uh, what she thought about uh, if the lab had a DA license or specifically Jim Hanchett. Next clip, Ren. Moving off that question, Jim Hanchett, he had that DA license for the lab, right? Correct. Yes. You, did you have a DA license? I think it was a lab wide. So it covered everyone on the lab. Not necessarily everyone. Uh, I think Jim Hinch was named on the license as a supervisor kind of thing, but I don't think it was a per, per, done as an individual basis. So if the ordering of the standards were done to Merck or Bristol-Myers or Squibb or whatever. Right. So he, he goes... So that, that, that actually is accurate that the lab uh, could work off um, one license. However, it's interesting that she gets into, or they get into the fact about ordering these things uh, because it subsequently becomes clear that 
Um, Tom Caldwell, the assistant attorney general who's uh, running this interview, realized or knew ahead of time that um, they weren't actually ordering these standards. Right. Right. What's interesting is I think she gave, uh, uh, and I, I can't say I've compared all transcripts, but of the limited trial transcripts that I've read uh, for, for uh, run-of-the-mill criminal cases, her testimony alone, everybody, Annie Dukin would say, this is how we do it. Uh, and right. the funny is that the first time someone's in a position to start asking some follow-up questions, uh, and I invite the uh, the listeners to, to to take note of how the story quickly starts to uh, uh, lose. Right, out. right. So let's hear about how long the the lab was manufacturing its own standards. All right, next clip. Next clip. So, and I know we had discussed this uh, on the last date, and you had indicated that uh, the lab at some point started to manufacture its own standards. It wasn't at some point. That was the way it was done since the day I walked in the door. Okay. So, fair to say, since 1987, yes, uh, people at the laboratory would take certain street drugs and manufacture maybe like a secondary standard to run as the standard against the police submitted samples? Yes, it would have to be verified and run through the instruments, but yes. Okay. So, um, there you have it. That was their process. Wow. So I, I would just note very quickly that um, uh, one of the state police chemists, uh, Nancy Brooks, testified that this was inappropriate. Right. They, they, they don't do this anymore in the labs. They, right. I mean, like the quote is sufficiently horrifying in and of itself, but just want to note there very quickly, there is testimony that this was not correct. It's yeah. not just us saying this. Yeah. This was not the way to do it. You don't and say. It's not what um, swear drug would recommend. Right. And now they spend well, you, a lot of money buying cocaine, pharmaceutical grade cocaine from distributors. They have a whole list of distributors that they get cocaine and heroin and all different kinds of drugs from. But somehow the convictions don't, you know, change. They just change their methodology behind the scenes. All right. So um, next, so I would use the vial. Oh, okay. So this is where Sharon talks about how she manufactured standards. This is where it really gets crazy. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Can't believe it already hasn't been crazy. All right, here we go. Those drugs to make those standards. When I was doing it, I can only speak for myself, I would use the vial that had been run through the instruments already. I could evaporate it down. I could dump 10 vials into a beaker, evaporate it down, and create my own standard that way. Then reconstitute it with a little bit of solvent to run on the instrument as a standard later on. Okay, so that wasn't... So there you have it stuff that was run on the instrument already. I, I don't know if we can curse on this show, but that is fucking crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. what did they do after it was run? Let, let's just start there. After that was run through this machine, where would that go? We'll get into it, but that... The, oh, go ahead. 
Yeah, I was going to say there are a bunch of clips yep. right in front of us, but uh, essentially the, would, the machines would have leftover residue in these vials, and she's explaining a process where she digs them out of the garbage can and puts them in a beaker and then combines them all together with a solvent, doesn't retest them, and then uses that as the standard. As the Mona Lisa from the garbage. And, and it, I don't know about you, but, but when she described the beaker, immediately I'm thinking uh, of Breaking Bad. Yep. I'm, thinking of, I'm thinking of some <laughs> of drugs. Um, uh, which uh, is sort of mind-boggling. All right. So, uh, like, like Chris said, the, these are. She's just going to go in the next clips. She just play the next one, Rand. It was the, the lab purchase standard. That was like what you were referring to as a secondary standard that was manufactured from street drugs. Correct. Okay. And those, and and so you're you're saying that from, since. Say you watch the majority in 1987. If you were to run out of a coke or heroin standard, this is what the procedure would be that you would manufacture a secondary sample for use. Correct. <laughs> All right. So let's just keep rolling with the clips. Hold on, hold on. Go ahead. Yep. Can I can I just pause there? Because there's a there's a, I mean, we're gonna get into this maybe, but there's a there's a number of problems with this idea that you can use a, a, a seized uh, street uh, uh, sample. Uh, one of them is, uh, you know, the, there's no hard data here, but there's estimates that somewhere between uh, uh, 10, or maybe 5 and 15%, I'll just rough here, of seized drugs are actually counterfeit. Um, the number, when you add in contaminants uh, and, and, and cutting agents, that uh, I'm sure that figure uh, gets much larger. Uh, it's very common for people to cut heroin with, for example, uh, uh, sleeping uh, uh, aids. Yep. Um, uh, mostly because it stretches your supply, increases your profit margin, but also the users will think, "Oh, I'm getting sleepy, so I must have gotten the good stuff." Right. Uh, and uh, and and so that's a uh, that's a problem. Also, Massachusetts defines cocaine particularly. And if you're seizing cocaine on the street and then reconstituting it, you don't necessarily, you, you, you don't have any means of, of saying that that is, the, that is the statutory definition of cocaine. Uh, and I might be uh, uh, getting out of my uh, depth here a little bit, Chris, but there's a, there's a specific, um, uh, I, I believe, isomer of cocaine. And the, the GCMS does not actually tell you that. Right. That's, I believe, from the microcrystalline test, um, but uh, I'm not a chemist. I, I guess what I'm saying is that you're... You play one on if, TV, though. Your assumption is what's wrong with recycling drugs in the ecosystem. The problem is you're relying on the, the honesty and, and um, merchantability of the uh, of the first guy's product, right. uh, and that yeah. is—I can tell you right now that that's probably the worst assumption you could ever make. Well, I mean, like the 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 best argument that a line prosecutor could come up with in trying to defend this practice is they've got this GCMS library, so you know 
who cares? It's going to find the fillers and what have you. But the solid, you know, foolproof answer to that is you have to demonstrate that the machine is working and they can't do that. So uh, it would never get to a jury if uh, the defense bar knew that this was happening. You could call Nancy Brooks from the state police lab. And and yeah. and talk and grill her every, yeah, every single day under oath. Just call her for every drug case that that this was done on, and say, "Okay, Nancy, what about this process?" She says it. She knows it. She's a legit scientist. Like that, whatever. Like the state police lab. You know, I I have problems with, but it's. I mean. You, you can't. This is not a valid scientific process, or else they wouldn't. Uh, Merck and these other companies wouldn't be manufacturing scientifically pure drugs that cost a fortune for people to buy. Like people wouldn't be buying it if they could just pinch it and it was legit. You know, like oh, well, it's crazy. It's not even. It's not even a fortune. So, like when I was looking into this, I contacted um, USP, which is one of the manufacturers, and it's like less than a hundred dollars a vial. So. <laughs> Get out of town. Are you serious? Over the course of a year, that's some amount of money, but like, it's not a crazy amount of money for a government laboratory. No. And they're, and they're taking milligrams, right? That's what they're running through the thing. It's milligrams. So how long would I, oh oh my God, I didn't know. I thought, I thought it was legitimately a ton of money. Wow. There is a, a, a deeper problem that we may never get to, which is sort of a, a, a fundamental accounting of how much drugs entered the labs right. uh, and drugs exited the labs uh, and, and how to account for that delta. Right. Um, as the, the, the fact, Chris, that the, the drugs are not that expensive to buy makes, on one hand, makes someone think, oh, then they should have just been buying plenty, sort of like buying you know, rolls of toilet paper uh, when you go to a, 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 you know, Costco. But the reality is that this is something that, uh, you know, they have some, the, the, the um, saffron is, you know, and razor blades are behind the glass case because uh, regardless of how you price them, people are going to help themselves. Well, if you have a, a sort of copious uh, drug supply and it's going to disappear, that's a problem. And so there's, the labs are almost indicting themselves by not ordering the stuff. Right. That's yeah, a good point. Someone should have been able to figure out that they were not ordering this you know, years earlier because of uh, the lab's budget, right? So at a certain point of time, in point, point of time, they stopped ordering them. And that seems to be when Jim Hanchett took over. Um, I think I, I sent you all copies of the logbook, or at least a, a selection of it. So they did seem to be keeping track of uh, the things that they were ordering from chemical manufacturers, at least when Alan Stevenson was working there and then there's like an eight year gap and then Hanchett takes over and there's like a couple of pages, which appears to be when the Massachusetts state police informed him that he had to be keeping an inventory of the drugs that were in his lab. Right. So sorry to go off on a tangent like that. That's good. What's interesting is that didn't prompt him to buy stuff. No. Um, Right, right, right. Well, but if they were doing it since '87, um, he he almost sounded obstinate. Like when we play that interview, like he almost sounded like this was the way. This was the way. I mean, they may have been ordering stuff from other things, but I think for coke and heroin, did, right? 
Right. I th- I think this was just the way it was done, and you were an idiot yeah. if you didn't. Anyways, if you actually went out and ordered a standard because this was how it was done, it's there's nothing wrong with it. So, um, next clip. All right, next clip. Here we go. Now, where did you get those drugs from? And I believe we had talked about this on the last time. Are you going to manufacture that standard, evaporate it down, do that? Where would you take those from? Any random sample. Yeah, so it'd be the random police-submitted samples you would take them from. Not necessarily the powder, per se, but after the fact, after it had been run, I would use my solvent, my extra sample that had just come off of the instruments. I would use that. Okay. Everybody had their own way of doing it. You'd have to talk to them and how each person would do it. Okay, what? so you you, would, you yourself would do that when you were a chemist one. You would yes. manufacture your own. Oh, yeah. And so that was for about a 10-year period. Correct. Okay. So I know we in our discussion back... Everyone Dude. had their own way? <laughs> so what? Right? Like Some guy <laughs> shot it through an elephant's nose. Well, he was only here a week, but like that was the craziest process yeah. I've ever seen. That was his way. Yeah. Andy, you don't still have the clip of Martha Coakley saying that it doesn't matter who the chemist is because all uh, machines. That'd be, that's it. <laughs> oh my god! Oh my god! You're so right. Oh no, it's it's in a uh, different episode, but yeah. yeah, that's wicked funny. Oh my god! Yeah, I mean, like, I don't know which part of that statement is more shocking, but like, everyone had their own way of doing it. Is is you know one of the zingers. Uh, <laughs> Doing it and doing it and doing it well. Right. It's, uh, that sounds like it's not, I don't know what it is, but it's not science. Um, and, and can we put a little bit more color on when she says, I, I take it at the vials when they come out of the machine. Uh, Chris, I don't know. I, I think you've seen one of these machines. Is that correct? Um, yeah. So there's a, there's a carousel that um, has either a hundred or 150 or 200 and some odd vials. And so um, each one of these is supposed to be marked with a tag with a barcode so you can tie it back to a specific evidence sample. In between those are supposed to be blanks, so it's just vacant, uh, so you can demonstrate that there's no carryover effect. Uh, And then there's also supposed to be the standard at the very beginning of the run, and then um, depending upon, you know, how scrupulous the lab is they might insert several more throughout the course of the run in order to demonstrate that the machine has been running properly for five or six hours or whatever it is and so uh after that will take its course there'll be you know a hundred leftover vials with this residue and they generally just get thrown in the garbage because they're hazardous waste because they're hazardous wastes. So there's, so there's, um, I mean, is this sort of um, uh, uh, high-end dumpster diving that's taking place here? I mean, is she going into a trash <laughs> bin to take out the vial? Well, I think, I think <laughs> they, they get into that in a minute. Um, Dude, what is high-end dumpster diving? I, I don't know. Is that like it's dumpster like, diving in a tux? <laughs> But I think that I think we'll get into that in at least a few minutes. It is discussed in, in one of her uh, uh, taped interviews. All right, next one, Rand. 
Uh, here we go. Springfield, you had indicated that um, you would search out certain samples because some were better than others to manufacture the standards, correct? Correct. You didn't want to use um, a sample that was loaded with impurities like lidocaine or something that was not pure. You wanted to get a more pure standard without a lot of extraneous material in it. And, and that's why you would you would test the sample, you would run it, and, so you, and you would discover, in fact, this whether is it was a, a candidate or not for a standard. And what in, in what was your criteria for being a candidate as a good? Without a lot of extraneous substances. Now, say for like powder cocaine, was there anything that in the machinery that would alert you to its purity? Right, you would know whether it had lidocaine in it or caffeine in it or extra drugs that would not be suitable. Okay. So, um, and this was standard procedure at the lab under DPH? Yes. And... Um, I believe it was Mass State, State Police also did this for quite a while, too. So, okay. <laughs> it's, it's standard practice in a lot of uh, labs. FYI, it's, it's, Mass State it, Police did standard this industry practice? I, I thought it was. Okay. Um, but you were just taught this when you came into the laboratory? Yes. And um, you stopped doing this in 2007 when you became the evidence officer. So why did he not say how long was Mass State Police doing this as well? <laughs> That's an interesting question. I, I did, to be fair, I did say in the earlier episode that um, maybe perhaps just with the two of you before that um, there was this microgram journal that the DA was putting out that was not public and these labs would be getting them. And if actual chemists had got their hands on them, they would be saying there's a significant problem here. Um, so it's quite possible that the state police uh, were doing this for a significant amount of time, um, you know, in the 70s, 80s, 90s. And it was uh, sort of, you know, the industry practice. But we, we do know, however, that, you know, at least by the time that Nancy Brooks testified, she was abundantly clear that this was not acceptable. Right. All right. So, Elias, anything to add? There was something I wanted to say, but um, but I sort of distracted myself by remembering, I, I don't know if it was Scarface, uh, <laughs> uh, was talking about getting the good stuff. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, you got a good product uh, today? Like, also, it's curious that uh, that little tidbit, I, I forget if it contradicts part of her interview, Salem's, or maybe Pontus's, but um, uh, one of them was asked, like, did you set aside the good stuff for Hanchet to take? And they said, no, 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 that's not what we were doing. <laughs> and uh, this little clip seems to suggest that that's exactly what they were doing. That was what they were so, doing. According to her, and and that was very, I believe her. And, and I, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not really sure why they thought, you know, I'm not really sure of the logic behind their thinking uh, of explaining that to the police in that manner. But uh, it just, you know, doesn't make sense to begin with. No. And, and I remember the observation I had, which is. Let's remind all of everybody that at this time, and we're talking, you know, 2012, 13, uh, uh, tail end, 
the big complaint was this massive backlog of samples that they can't test the samples fast enough uh, to, 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 to give everyone a speedy trial. Uh, and now you find out that maybe one reason for the backlog is because they're testing seized drugs to do a stealth secondary standard campaign. And, my, and everyone's doing it. My question is, well, how much time did that take away from what you were supposed to do? And wouldn't it have been faster just to order cocaine and heroin from a, from a pharmaceutical manufacturer? Right. Not to mention the weight of the drugs that it every like they're they're literally taking from evidence in the every single gram counts like years. These are years. Yeah, in, in a trafficking case, uh, like they weren't telling these defendants that this was going on. So I think I told you before uh, I was able to identify a specific Fall River sample yep. uh, that the Hinton Lab was using for heroin. Uh, weight mattered in that guy's case. Yep. And, uh, you know, they did not tell him that they were pilfering from that sample. Yeah. So it no longer weighs that. They didn't mention that in court. <laughs> Unbelievable. Next one. All right, here we go. But we swear it, weigh, it weighed that much before. Don't worry about it. You're in jail anyway, so shut up. <laughs> Enhance it at that point or at some point was manufacturing uh, samples at the lab. Standards. Standards, excuse me. Yes. And was he the only one manufacturing those standards? I do not know. You don't know. Um, so you don't know if Rebecca or... Uh, Didn't she just say everyone had their different way of doing it? I, I do not know. She just said that. So you had indicated on our previous conversation with myself and Investigator Mantela that I believe um, Jim Hanscher would come and he would pinch from certain pure samples to, in fact, manufacture standards you'd have to ask him how he Whoa. created his samples his standards back up would you remember having a conversation with me concerning that i may have said that yes um but <laughs> when i worked in the lab earlier years we had a lot more we needed to use a lot more sample than what we did in later years so i'm thinking my recollection of when I was speaking with you last time in Springfield made it sound like we had buckets of drugs. <laughs> we were just pinching things off. When um, Before we had a mass spec, we had to use a lot more volume of sample to purify it for the IR, infrared. Um, we had to run it through columns and pack columns and run all kinds of solutions through the columns. And we would have beakers full of um, sample. So in that regard, there would be more <laughs> sample around in the lab because of the requirements to purify the samples for analysis. Ah, nailed it. I did not mean to imply that Jim was taking powder from samples that he should not have been. Uh -huh. I do not recall anything that he was doing <laughs> below board. I mean, everything was on the up and up that he was doing. No, I understand. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think my favorite part was when she was like, oh, no, no, that's how he made his standards. That wasn't a good correction. <laughs> You know what I mean? <laughs> also, I, I know as a lawyer, when someone says, I do not recall during a deposition, that means they definitely recall it and are just trying to lie. Yep. Yeah. 
And Is you literally. Yeah, you, um, especially when everything else is recalled so easily, uh, and then suddenly uh, you're not aware of what anyone else is doing. Uh, there were only a handful of people in the lab. So for her to say everyone was doing it, and Jim was doing it in this way, and then to say, well, I don't know what anyone was doing. Well, you know you were doing it, and you said he was doing it, and there's only two other people. Two other people. Dude, she just said everyone had their own way. Everyone had their own way of doing it. Everyone. Not her and not Jim, but everyone. Like, wouldn't it be we? I don't know. I mean, I don't think we're splitting hairs on this one. I think this was a total backtrack. And like, it gets back to the fundamental of Swigdrug that you have to have written protocols. But anyway. (laughs) Which, again, all of them said on the stand. We follow swig drug. Right. We follow swig drug. Right. We follow swig drug. Next. Right. Next. Uh, favor. Next clip. Yeah. Uh oh. Let's see what else she's getting into here. But it was, it was uh, my understanding that these samples, if they were coming in, if they were tested as pure or very pure samples, and they were found to be, in the eyes of the chemist doing the test, an excellent candidate for use in manufacturing a secondary, that these would be flagged and after the tests were done, some of that substance was removed from the police sample and stored for use at a lab. I don't think anything was flagged and that we would go back in to no, I'm perhaps at the, more at the that, time that would not happen. At the time of the test. At the time of the test, you might notice that, okay, maybe it was a, a good candidate for a standard. Um, I don't think it was anything that, um, I don't know, that was bad to do you know oh, no, no, the I, way we were you know taught to generate our standards okay no no i understand that but they were when you, you found a good candidate um salem a good candidate for standard manufacturing yes. you would take from that sample right correct and it would be stored in a vial for either use at that time or use at a later date i would not do it like that i did not do it like that i used my my vials that were, had already been run, I did not go back into the sample to take powder directly from the sample. Okay, and that's not how you did it. That's not again. how I did it. I do not know how other people did it. And what would you but no one else do did it. if if um, if it wasn't used as a standard? What would you do with the sample? With those vials? Yes. They were stored um, in a five-gallon bucket. And they were deemed hazardous waste, and UMass would come and collect them all. Okay. So when you, and so just for a layperson, so when you uh, when you test something, uh, you take you take whatever uh, amount you take, and you test it. Um, in the normal course of business, that sample would then be sort of discarded. Correct. Okay. Okay. And so, <laughs> into a five-gallon bucket of drugs. <laughs> you want to run the next one? I think. Yeah, yeah let's yeah. just run the next one. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a quick one here. Didn't have a drawer in his office that you knew of where any of these. No, was absolutely stored. not. No. Okay, and no coke drawer. I swear, officer. There is no drawer full of Coke. 
but later she refers to a coke drawer. So anyway, <laughs> but on. there totally was a coke drawer. But no, I swear to God, no, I'm allowed not. to lie to you because I work for you, and therefore you won't charge me with anything. But if I was a minor, if I you know was picked up off the street and I lied to the police on the stand, and you know when they were interviewing me, that wouldn't matter at all either. Up. Uh- <laughs> all right. Uh, next let's, one. Let's just keep rolling. All right. All right. Here we go. But in our last conversation, you had mentioned it to myself and Investigator Manslin that you believe that this wasn't the best practice. Correct. Now, can you just expound on that? Why is that not the best practice? Standard should be huh? received mm-hmm. from certified drug lab certified drug companies, not generated in house. And why is that <laughs> in your experience and training? It looks better. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 um, it's a certified standard, certified by a drug company. It just um, looks better. Uh, not to say that it's any different than, you know, what we were doing. It's just the way the world has moved more. Wow. Better on our paperwork, better on everything now. Would, wow. would, it, would it be a... Uh, a uh, cost issue where absolutely where you're saving the commonwealth money uh-huh. basically right absolutely okay. standards are expensive I, I assume they are so when <laughs> if oh, yeah yeah totes yeah. super expensive uh, and it only looks good it's not because of scientific purity at all it just looks better that's why yeah I was able to get a copy of the um USP um, catalog. And so that's why I was able to figure out how some of the Hinton Labs standards were expired. But these things are like $140, which is like sort of expensive, but for a government lab that's charged with certifying test results where people go to jail for like maybe a decade or more, it's, it's, not, it's not massive amounts of money. Standards are expensive. It just looks better. Well, right. It's 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 revealing that she's she's now done. I think a, a couple of full circles. Yep. She started out saying we buy it, and then she start then uh, she said that well we made it in house, uh, and then she said but there was nothing wrong with making it in house, and then she said but it would be best to to get it from a, a reputable source, and then she can only come come up with that it looks better. And I think that that's actually pretty revealing because it shows that this was all about cosmetics. This was all about the, the creating this uh, fake facade of reliability to support a conviction mill, uh, which is what I believe those labs were. Uh, and and I, I believe both labs suppressed uh, as often as they could negative results. Uh, there were rampant retesting, failure to disclose prior tests. Uh, and now we find out that there was a, a, a misleading, possibly false testimony about the standards. And I just pulled up the catalog from USP, as I was saying, and diacetyl morphine, which is heroin, uh, was $166 per vial in 2002. So that's the amount of money that, that we're talking about. Standards are expensive. Well, it's expensive. No it's expensive compared to not buying anything at all. 
It's just pinching. But don't worry, she wasn't pinching just from the drugs. She was oh, only oh. using the trash. And then just to hit the other point, so she got very defensive, which uh, uh, I thought was interesting. She did. When she was asked where, you know, okay, so you may or may not have pinched samples and you may or may not have recycled uh, uh, from the trash bin. Um, but, oh, and you eyed candidates, right? You looked for, you were on the prowl for something that, that seemed pure. And, and I'll make a little footnote. There's no such thing as being pure. There's degrees of purity and scientific standards have uh, required that you use certain uh, 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 exacting standards and cutoffs. And so to, for someone to say, well, it's pure is, is, is a non-statement, but putting that aside, um, you got very defensive about where we store this or whether we quote unquote flag uh, uh, samples. And so I'm, I'm trying to imagine maybe a post-it, like a big yellow post-it that says good stuff on it, on a plastic bag. And like then pointing to it? Rock, walk by and rubberneck at the sample. Uh, and, and so was that what's going on here? Was there some, was it, was it uh, to use the word, uh, the uh, arcane legal phrase, uh, which is not going to work now because Chris just ran upstairs. Um, but there's a there's a legal uh, a doctrine called uh, attractive nuisance. Um, uh, uh, Chris, the, you may remember from law school attractive nuisance, the, the doctrine of attractive nuisance. That um, what, did did they create in tort? In tort. Did they create a a uh, um, an attractive nuisance for the Sonia Frox of the world by having uh, large post-its of drugs that say this is the good stuff just kind of laying around? I mean, is that, what, is that why she was being defensive? Obviously, you kept it some, right? Well, I mean, there's an entire federal regulatory regime to make it not an attractive nuisance, but they just weren't following that, <laughs> right? So, I mean, like, if you keep your cocaine in a locked videotaped area, then it's not really so attractive, to someone who wants to steal it. But uh, if you're not doing that, it sort of is. But if it's on a desk in an unlocked room in the middle of mass, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you might flagged, have a problem. It's flagged good stuff. This stuff is the, <laughs> it's the tits. Anyways, next clip. Right, next clip. There were budget problems at the lab. That you know of, that you know of. And were there issues with DPH supplying you with the necessary funds to buy these standards? Is that perhaps a reason why you were doing what you were doing for so long? I don't know. You'd have to talk to Jim about that. I don't know what, you know, whether he was ever told that, you know, I knew we had so much money that we were allowed to spend every year that, you know, money would get tight by the end of the fiscal year kind of thing. I don't know if it was an, ever an issue concerning standards or not. Okay. So just, just so I'm clear, um, and this is just based upon our last conversation, you, you, you're telling us today that you had no knowledge of anybody taking from police submitted samples directly after testing and no. storing those drugs. No. For use, of, use later as a standard. In spite of what you no. said. No. So you, you were using the sample otherwise uh, thrown away? I was using that. I don't know what other people were doing. Okay. I was just using the trash. Please and thank you. Yeah, not better. <laughs> <laughs> like indignantly, I was just using garbage. 
but uh, you know, and I had no idea what Jim was doing, even though I told you he was totally pinching from bags that looked awesome. Anyways, next clip. Was it something that was that you had discussions with Jim about, or any of the other chemists, or? No, I mean, I believe Jim has testified in court to the way he prepared standards. I mean, I don't think it's anything that um, he would be afraid to talk about the way he did it. So it has come up before. Was he your supervisor when you came in 1987? Um, he was one of my supervisors, yes. But the, um, the manager of the lab was Alan Stevenson. Jim was above me at that point. In 1987? Yes. Huge Max Hedrum fan, Jim, I hear, from 1987. That's a 1987 reference. <laughs> um, all right, so, so, we know, so Jim taught her how to do the standards. We don't have to play the next clip. Uh, let's skip down to the next, the one after that, the ordering of standards and supplies. And there we go, if you're going to skip. Um, did Jim ever have any discussions with you uh, regarding the standards and them running low or the need to order more? <clears throat> Not directly. He would just do the ordering when he needed to do it. And it, if you remember, how frequently was that? I don't know. I didn't handle any of the orderings. I didn't do the paperwork for that. He would handle all the orderings. Okay, and was, is it fair to say Jim not only did the, all the ordering for the lab, but was he kind of like the financial officer of the lab too? Did he yes. The, so he dealt with the budget directly with DPH. Yes. And you had no dealings Correct. with DPH. Did you hear, was there, was there any ever talk in the lab about not getting enough money or not being able to buy standards or machinery or... Things of that nature. Well, that was always an issue. Um, you know, whether we needed an, a new instrument um, or, you know, uh, supplies or whatever, everything had to be budgeted out. And, you know, we got instruments when they had the money for it. You know, we always had to have the wish list and be prepared to put something out there that we needed this or we wanted that. And it was just part of the state. Protocols, you know. Um, next clip. Next clip. And you now work for the state police, correct? Yes. And in your time at the DPH lab versus when you were transferred to the state police when they took over, what were the, what were the differences that you can tell me right off the bat in terms of how each organization operates their own drug lab? I don't know about the state police drug lab. I've been transferred into the criminalistics unit. Just between the criminalistics unit and the drug unit in Amherst, it's like night and day. Um, there's protocols to follow. There's written <laughs> procedures. There's didn't again paperwork. didn't affect there, anyone's sentence. It is. It's like night and day. And there was none of that you could say in place at your time in Amherst, correct? correct. And so there were no protocols, no procedures. There was no essentially no formal written manual on how things should be done. Correct. And also it's more of, should we say, these are kind of our own procedures that we've made up as we've gone along. So this is how we do it. So this is how you should do it. Yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, so like step one in 
Dabbert Lanigan, I mean, it's sort of like a precursor because it's always taken for a given, but like, you know what procedure you're talking about, right? right. If it's not written down and everyone in the lab is doing something different, it's hard to even understand how the remaining Daubert analysis can take place, right? Because right. you're talking about the reliability of a protocol that isn't a protocol, like something that someone did in some instance in one case. <laughs> and you don't know why, and you don't know how, and what it was based on. And it's. <laughs> and someone just showed it to you at some yeah. point, but you don't remember who. Yeah. This just exists, so don't worry about it. Like it's just it's just our process. Well, and right. So Daubert is what keeps astrology and tarot card uh, out of courtroom. Um, but um, it's sort of it's it's sort of hard to keep track of how we got here. But originally there was a massive uh, office of the Inspector General investigation of the Hinton lab. Amherst was essentially a footnote to that. And I think Sonia Farrakh was literally a footnote. She was. Uh, then they realized, well, some fishy stuff was going on in Amherst. Let's ask some questions. And we figure out that everybody was sort of, uh, whatever the right word is, manufacturing or reconstituting or somehow uh, create, creating creatively um, uh, secondary standards. And does no one think, well, what were they doing at Hinton? Because if it was expensive for Amherst, which I don't buy that that's the reason, but let's pretend that's the reason. If it was expensive for Amherst to buy it. It was also expensive for Hinton. And why, why, did, why, why was that question never asked? Yeah. What were the, uh, Chris, you so, know what's going on in Hinton. So, talk about the Fall River, Sam. Yeah, so um, they asked uh, Alan Stevenson, who ran both labs, and he said, yes, we were doing it. And uh, they asked uh, the chemist at Amherst, so Salem and Pontus, I believe both said, or maybe it was just Salem, I think they were doing it downtown at Hinton. Uh, and then um, instead of like looking through records, they decided to interview Annie Dukin. And she said, no, we weren't doing it. And then they said, case closed. Right. If Annie Dukin says we were not doing something or we were doing something, we're gonna take her word for it. And take that to the bank. Did they did they interview anyone else? Do you know if they interviewed anyone else from him? To my knowledge, uh Caldwell team um interviewed um Sonia Sherrick, Hanchett, Sharon Salem, Rebecca Ponce, Nancy Brooks, um, Alan Stevenson, and Annie Dukin. And uh if they interviewed anyone else, they should have sent me transcripts because I filed a public record request for it. Well, <laughs> again, it's worth reiterating that according to the attorney general's office in my public records request, the interview that we're currently listening to doesn't exist. So. Right. And yet it was a delight to listen to. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds great for something that, that doesn't exist. It sounds amazing. Right. I can't keep underscoring this, but you can imagine how differently the hearings would have gone in December of 2016 if this had been released, right? Like, yeah, I mean, this this is a train wreck of a lab. Like, this is this is a joke, and they knew it was a joke, and there's a reason that they're hiding this stuff because, and I guarantee, there's no way that they didn't interview anyone else from from oh. Hinton. No way. And 
and, and Chris, I went in uh, to, I have a very limited pool of data. Um, I'm not in a position of uh, CPCS even, but uh, I have uh, in, a, in a, a sample size of two, I went back and looked at some of the cases, the lab work, paperwork that I have. And I believe, and I can confirm it for our next episode, that I, I had never looked at this. It never even occurred to me in my case to look at the, at the standard because the issue in my case uh, was that my client... Uh, it was a peanut. <laughs> it was a, I think it was a cashew. Um, and in any event, the, the, the lab determined on the first run that that was some form, and I'm going to probably mispronounce it, but oleic acid, which is a fatty, foodborne fatty acid. Um, and uh, consistent with the cashew. And then it was retested and somehow cocaine uh, um, parachuted into it. Uh, and um, so I never looked at the, at the standard. And so I went back and looked at all my paperwork and lo and behold, I found a second peak in one of the cocaine standards. Yeah. Now, it, it's not a peak peak, it, but it's, uh, it, it would be like a little, little point where there should be none. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and that made me realize, and I think that's when this thing kind of lodged in me uh, a little bit more clearly, that, that this was the practice, that cocaine and heroin, I'm not going to speak to the other uh, uh, drugs, although I will say that there's a number of drugs that they didn't even run through the GCMS. And I think uh, uh, Jamie and I will have to drill down on that a little bit more, uh, but we're talking about of the things that you're testing in your machine, your fancy machine, of which cocaine and heroin are are the main two, uh, that you're not buying a reputable um, uh, uh, standards. Uh, and I have some evidence, and Chris, you have a lot of evidence uh, that they were doing this at Hinton. And and so again, the question is. It, it should should this have been investigated, and are there going to be uh, or uh, is anyone calling for uh, either an investigation into the investigation or at least a thorough investigation? Well, for absolute sure, I've been able to pin down that they were doing this with heroin samples uh, at the Hinton lab for a period of years, starting at least around two thousand two through two thousand five, six, or seven. With regard to the other drugs, it's a little unclear. Um, I actually went to the Library of Congress and a NIH library to try and figure out when some of these things expired. And the one that was listed for cocaine, uh, I was never able to find an expiration date. So uh, that's problematic. It doesn't ever expire. But that's I, what it means. It's like, it's like Count Chocula. But we know, uh, we, I, I mean, I guess this is, it's hard to sometimes prove a negative. Um, right. But if the lab, if Hinton lab had been ordering cocaine, then I would think that somewhere uh, an invoice or a packing slip uh, or something uh, would have appeared in the OIG files. So, so there's like QC documents and some of the reason why the Caldwell uh, report is interesting uh, with Annie Dukin's remarks because the QC documents directly contradict them. Um, <laughs> but, it, it, you know, in any event, uh, 
they have some that show legitimate cocaine and legitimate heroin for a period of time, but it's not the entire time that the inspector general's office was looking at the lab, right? So they said their uh, inspection included 2002 through 2012. It's on the title of the report, and they somehow did not pick up on this issue. Right. Somehow. And um, well, and Dukin, that also contradicts think- Dukin's own testimony uh, on the stand from uh, excerpts that I've seen with when she testifies about manufacturing standards. Yes. So it's actually, um, she's not before the grand jury. I think I may have said that in in a prior episode. She's just uh, being interviewed by um, uh, the attorney general's office and the state police. But she did definitively say uh, we weren't doing anything like this. (laughs) Well, we'll get to that. But let's um, let's let's roll through the the last few of these. Um, Go ahead, Rand. You never had an opportunity to go to the Jamaica Plain Laboratory other than picking up overflow samples, correct? Correct. Okay. Um, I think you would indicate in our last conversation um, the superior, superior, the individual who ran both labs, her name was? Julie Nassif. Julie Nassif. And you had indicated previously that Julie had never come out to the lab before? I believe she was there um, once for a tour when we were undergoing construction maybe one one other time maybe twice in the 20 years that i was there <laughs> um was there really any, any, any at any time any conversation uh, or do you have any feelings on how you thought dph ran the lab the drug laboratory in amherst they never wanted the drug laboratory in amherst they were very hands-off um we were used as scapegoats. We were not as scapegoats, but as pawns in the budget crisis. Every other year, they threatened to shut us down. Um, we did not get any support. When you um, say support, what kind of support do you mean? Continuing education, protocols, um, management. It, you know, we had concerns. It was... Um, don't make too many waves. Don't, you know, I, I, for years I wanted, um, more security in the lab. I wanted, uh, panic buttons. I wanted cameras. I wanted a peephole so I could see who was on the other side of the door since it was a public hallway. Um, no. things like that. And, uh, it was never addressed, never happened. Was it requested and not addressed by the Department of Public Health or how did that, op- how did that work in terms of? the concerns you had, who did you relay those to? I would re- relay those to my supervisor. Um, I believe I even sent an email to somebody some at one point down in J- JP, and I, it just never happened. Why would you want security to lab full of drugs? <laughs> like, that is that is idiotic. All right. Uh, next clip. Next Here we go. So um, I'm going to ask you, um, and you had described this in some of your your previous testimony about um, how you would operate the machinery, the um, the mass spectrometer, the gas chromograph, in terms of uh, running blanks mm-hmm. and running, and how frequently you would run blanks. Can you just describe for us, for me again, that that process? Right. We would do a batch of samples. We would typically run a standard at the beginning of the run and a blank 
directly after that standard, and then we would run more samples, our, our you know, 10 to 15 samples. Um, that was considered a, a run. Once the state police took us over in July, they, for their protocols, they wanted us to run a blank after every sample. And is that, is it fair to say that that's kind of natural, a national procedure, national protocol? Probably. <laughs> I don't know for sure. <laughs> but the Meh. procedures changed vastly from the time from DPH to Mass State Police. That procedure did. Okay. Um, did anything change in terms of the way you would process the evidence as it, as it came in? Uh, all right. We do. So, we doing the final one. Uh, yeah. Well, so there's there's one. There's two. Oh, yeah, there should right. be there's two more. Two, right? There's two. There's two. Yeah. So the next one is about the heat seal of the drugs, and that's going to lead directly to Sonia, the oh. queen of the heat, the the soft heat seal. <laughs> From DPH to yes, Staples. they wanted the um, police to um, initial and date the seal, the heat seal, as they. Um, we're passing it off to me to make sure that they had initial and dated it. Okay. So. Which I, I was unaware that I was supposed to be doing that before that. And that was never done at the. No. DPH lab. Um, so you would, you would heat, you would heat sale it in your, in your own evidence bag after it was brought in by the police department, correct? They would use their evidence bag most of the time. Okay. And I would stick our sticker onto their evidence bag. And then it would be sealed right there in front of you? Yes. Um, were there any bags sometimes that you know to seal easier than others? Yes. I mean, some of the evidence bags are three layers or so. Um, it depends on what kind of bag they used. Okay. Anything else that changed between the Department of Public Health other than just signing, the officer signing and initialing the seals or anything else that you were told? For new, new, receiving samples? Correct. And new or new equipment that you were given in regards to? I don't think so. So you're Are still you? using the barcode? Yes. Scanning? Yes. So you manually put it in and then generate a barcode? And yes. It would be scanned in and out as the evidence would come and go? Correct. Correct. Was that, I know you don't, you might not know, but was that the same procedure at Hinton JP? Up to the yes, takeover. they were using the same program that we were, so it should have been the same. And that was, um, th is that how you dealt with the overflow when you picked it up at JP or you, you or Jim picked it up when they scan it out? Correct. And that was that, that was all in one central database that you had access to? I did not have access to the JP database. Would you come back and would you then I would rescan them in under the Amherst database? Yes. So they would go out from JP. You would enter them, and then. If oh, You're triggering my memory. Um, I don't believe I could actually scan. I'm trying to think how that worked because there would be two different numbers, like A numbers and B numbers. Yeah, we had briefly. I'm disgusted. I might have had to be a paper chain for that, that actual transfer. When Jim threw it in the back of his Buick and drove 40 <laughs> pounds of cocaine Sorry, down. I cannot recall whether that I would actually be able to scan a JP sample or not. But, but you would enter them. Yeah. Dear God, sorry. That should have cut off long ago. Um, so she couldn't really remember. But again, if we remember the last, 
the last podcast from Rebecca Ponce, the supervisor would go down to uh, Jamaica Plain, get a shitload of drugs, and then throw them in the trunk of his car and drive them down Route 2 to Amherst. Not exactly the, uh, imagine if your life was dependent on every single ounce of cocaine that was in the back of that car. It, anyways. <laughs> huh. um, so the next one is relatively lengthy. Yeah, this is a long, this is like an eight minute clip and it's all, I, I, I left it long because it's all Sonya related. Is this uh, still from the first? This is, from part, this is the end of part one. This is the very end of part okay. one. She, she, I love, catch her, like, when she describes what she thought of Sonya's appearance is my favorite, but... but Also, let me know if you want me to stop and yeah. stuff as we go along, okay? Yeah, we'll just hit you up. All right, go ahead. This is the big one. Sonya Farrakh for a little of this. Um, and you had testified to this previously, and I know we had a conversation back at Springfield when we spoke about this. Um... What were your observations of her as a person when she began at the lab? Slightly overweight and did not take much pride in her appearance. Um, and you had, uh, did you have anything to do with her, her hiring? Nothing. Okay. So she was, was she, is it fair to say she was hired by the folks in JP and sent out? Correct. You. And um, you worked with her for about how long, if you recall? I believe she started in August of 2004. So from 2004 to 2013. So about eight, nine years? Correct. Okay, and you worked with her every day? Yes. Okay, and um, what did you note about her on a daily basis? Was there anything unusual, strange? about Sonia? Other than talking to herself, which was a little disconcerting to me at times, but I mentioned that to Rebecca and she goes, what? I, I don't remember her doing that. So um, she would talk to herself. Um, she was meticulous with her work. Can you say meticulous she, with her work? What, what makes you say that? Her notes were impeccable. Her, her lab notes were impeccable. I never had any issues with any of her work. And you would review all her work. I would, yeah. That was one of the things that state police did require after um, they took us over, that we would do technical reviews on her work, um, everybody's work, and very few mistakes. So that was in 2012 you started to look over her work. Correct. And you said even in that period, 2012, after they shut down the hidden lab, her work was still meticulous? Yes. Um, <laughs> did, before the incidents that took place in January 2013, was there never an issue regarding the weights of her samples or losing samples or anything of that like that? No, not that I could recall that, um, was ever an issue. Um, Can you pause it right there, Rand? She was the, the state police later found, I believe, over a hundred discrepancies in weight um, just from that year. <laughs> and she was filling bags of cocaine with. And she was filling bags with cocaine with like all kinds of different crap, right? To, to make up the weight. 
Like she was just throwing random stuff in police evidence bags to make up for what she was so, stealing. Uh, wax shavings, uh, molding clay, um, you know, all sorts of different materials. The, meticulous. She was meticulous, my friend. She was the best at her job. <laughs> Did you ever catch her say smoke and crack? Did you ever, like, because she was doing that in the bathroom. Did, did you ever catch her say cooking crack? Like combining she cocaine and bacon cook. soda? She yeah. was the best cook. She was, <laughs> she was so meticulous with it. Like she was doing that in the lab. All right. Uh, she, she was doing that in the evidence room <laughs> where Sharon Salem worked sometimes. Apparently. She, <laughs> were they all on crack? Like, anyways. If that would hold, but if that was meticulous... <laughs> What was everyone else like? I know. All right, continue. Everybody, you know, would have a discrepancy because they, the state police, that was one of their protocols. If there was a discrepancy, we had to fill out a form if the count was off. Um, but all the chemists were coming up with, you know, slight discrepancies that we would um, contact the police department about at that point. And uh, no, I don't recall anything unusual about hers. Do you ever recall at any point while you you were the evidence officer that police departments would call you after they picked up drugs and say, you know, this isn't what we dropped off in terms of the weight or the assistant district attorney here is saying that, you know, no. that never happened with, no. uh, with Son any of Sonia's samples? No. Um, any of the in same? terms of you talking about her work being meticulous, um, what, what, what was, and I'm going to ask you to compare Sonia to Rebecca. What was their output like? How many, how many samples did they test? And how close were they month to month? I don't recall how many samples they would do on a month to month basis, but I do recall through the years that they were neck and neck on sample output each month. And the last few months, um, we did notice that uh, Sonia's had dropped off, that they weren't neck and neck anymore, that she had dropped her production level. And we had assumed that it was because of the extra paperwork involved in, in um, producing results now with the state police and in the extra protocols that were in place now. Um, we had noticed it. We didn't know, obviously, that there was that much of an issue. <laughs> when did you really begin to see her productivity drop off? It was like August of 2012 or so. So about six months before her arrest? Correct. And when you say fell off, was it, did it fall off dramatically or little by little? But, um, I don't I don't recall it being dramatically. Little by little, you know, just quite, not quite what she was producing before. <laughs> Will you just describe the chemist as competitive at all? I didn't realize that. <laughs> no, but would you, I mean, I, no, I would not. In terms of them, kind of, were they like racing back and forth to get new samples to test, or no? Was <laughs> not, there any talk? Not that I was aware of. Talk here. You Absolutely want to pause not. it? Um, you notice how everything revolves around the number of samples that were being processed. Like that's, that's good point. That's all they noticed that her processing dropped off. Not that she was. I mean, at that time, she was in fairly rough shape, right? By all accounts. Well, <clears throat> well, you know, at this point in time, Sharon Salem uh, is being interviewed and she doesn't realize that Sarah had been, 
using drugs since essentially the day that she got to the lab. So, uh, I mean, I, she, I must imagine she's trying to piece it together herself, but, um, I think, uh, maybe the turning point for Ms. Farrick, um, it turns out she went to a DEA school and they taught her how to make crack cocaine. And that appears to be when she spiraled out of control. And that was so, approximately, do you remember approximately when that was? That was sometime in 2012, if not 2011. So some of what she's saying does, you know, sync up with that. But um, it just is fascinating to me that, um, you know, she may have spiraled out of control because the government taught her how to make crack. (laughs) It gave her the opportunity to make a lot of it. Remind me of the chronology because um, at the time this interview, and I don't know if Jamie or Chris, if you have the exact date. It's November November 2015, I believe, correct? Yep. So my my memory is at this point, uh, Luke Ryan has still not been given the box of documents. Is that correct? So he gets it in, I think it's in 2014. So some some of this is known, but Farrick's own testimony um, has not been released. So Caldwell has already um, had Farrick's testimony before a grand jury and has not released it to Salem. So some of the pointed questions I imagine are based on things that he learned from that, which. And, and the official uh, uh, dogma was, or the, the, the party line rather coming out of the attorney general's office is, Oh, she just started dabbling in 2012. And right. yep. no evidence she was using it before. Um, right. And so this is, I take it, uh, Sharon Salem trying to put a. Um, uh, put yeah, a, when, when he's asking, like, awesome. you mean you're thinking it's just like six months, right? I feel like uh, that may have been sort of the party line goal, but uh, there's all this other evidence that they had. So, I mean, it's just fascinating that that they want us to believe that that. Uh, Annie Dukin gets arrested. State police takes over the two labs. And that's the trigger that drives someone to drugs. I mean, I think that would be the worst time, uh, right? To, uh, right when you have state police breathing over your shoulder to say, I'm really going to start getting high during my workday. And it doesn't make sense. Well, yeah, the original narrative made zero sense. It only made sense in the sense of if you were trying to cover it up and limit the damage as much as possible. That concludes episode six of The Rigged Podcast. Tune in next time to hear the rest of this interview on episode seven.